Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 130, Mountain Fascists. Alright, I'll admit, events deep down in the Balkans were kind of a continuation of what had already preceded the Depression, just with a little bit of extra stability thrown into the churning mix found in that part of southern Europe. A bit further to the north, though, and the Depression started to unlock multiple Pandora's boxes that brought new kinds of nightmares to the region, ones that hadn't yet been reckoned with before in those places. It was in nations like Austria and Hungary that fascism would establish itself most strongly, with both states either falling to its influence outright, like in Austria, or more in stages like Hungary. More on that next week. Regardless of the path taken, democratic politics would be pipe dreams in both nations well before the Nazis started turning the continent upside down. Romania, for its part, would not fall to fascism before the start of the next war, but its own internal fascists would only grow in popularity and prove intractable opponents to the nation's status quo. It was, though, these nations especially that the Germans would look for partners, co-belligerents, and resource extractors to run their future war machine. Austria was fated to be subsumed and turned into an integral part of the Third Reich, while Hungary and Romania would eventually become key allies in the European axis. So, understanding the march of fascism in the region is vital to understanding how the Nazis got their hooks into the place. I'm going to first take a look at Austria during the Peak Depression years. Um, actually, I'm starting a smidge further back than that, because my coverage on Austria last season was scanty by my standards and deserves a little bit more detail. Because, oh boy, that nation's descent into fascism was just as harrowing as I made Italy's out to be, and what Germany's will be as well. My brief look at Austria back in episode 39 was basically a repeat of a larger German experience in the first decade after World War I. The economy was in shambles, the country was dependent on foreign loans, and the continuing popularity of social democrats led the establishment to back paramilitary organizations to do their reactionary dirty work and suppress said social democrats. In Austria, the collection of paramilitaries was called the Heimwehr, and unlike the Free Corps over in Germany, they stuck around. Their longevity was due to a number of reasons. First and foremost, the Entente was too concerned with Germany to bother pushing Austria to disband their unruly shadow army. Another reason was that many members of the political establishment and the actual army were officers and supporters of the group. Lastly, the Heimwehr secured foreign support from Benito Mussolini and the fascist government in Italy. They were useful proxies at keeping the Austrian government as far to the right as possible, and therefore more amicable towards Italy. It didn't hurt that many in the Heimwehr were admirers of Mussolini and desired not just his support, but an alliance with him as well. The group itself was fairly decentralized across the smaller subregions of Austria by the end of the 20s, with between 150 and 200,000 members. Of that, some 40,000 men were organized into the combat wing and armed with leftover rifles from the old empire, as well as rifles shipped in from Germany during the days of the Free Corps. Uh, more concerningly was the presence of up to 850 machine guns and 150 artillery pieces in the Heimwehr arsenals, in addition to stockpiles of grenades and a handful of armored cars, so the threat of physical force was always very real with that group. 
To counter the Heimwehr, the Social Democrats in Austria had formed their own paramilitary group, the Schutzbund, back in 1923. While they were able to hold their fascist opponents at bay in the larger cities, the socialists were reviled by the conservative political establishment, and so faced an uphill battle at every turn. The security forces, whether among the police or the army, favored the Heimwehr, as did the non-socialist politicians. The leaders of the Schutzbund felt forced to pick their battles, and more and more they lost ground. In a notable incident I covered last season, in July 1927, a major riot broke out in Vienna against the acquittal of Heimwehr members who had killed a man and a child. There was a general strike soon afterwards, and the crowds on the street approached the Palace of Justice. The crowd broke into the place and started setting fires, which gave the police all the grounds they required to start shooting into the crowd, killing scores. The incident threw the socialists into retreat around Austria as they realized that the established authorities were willing to gun them down in the streets, which also meant that they would be far less inclined to take to those streets in the future, badly depowering the Schutzbund. For the Heimwehr, they realized that their moment had come and began acting far more brazenly. Indeed, July 1927 was a turning point moment in Austrian politics as the delicate balance between the Social Democrats and everyone else was broken. Now the establishment conservatives were free to bicker amongst each other over how to reshape Austria. And that meant the major players really started taking a hard look at the Heimwehr and concluding that it was probably best to get them on their side. The sitting Austrian chancellor up to late 1929, Ignaz Seipel, wasted no time in courting the group. Meanwhile, his main rival and head of the Vienna police, Johann Schober, was even more active in his courtship. And the Heimwehr preferred Schober as he was the one who had his police open fire in the crowds in July 1927. To them, Schober was their man and would endorse their activities. This alignment was politically expedient as between 1927 and 1930, membership exploded to 400,000 members. The size of the group meant that they became central to the march of the far right in Austria and will be a particular focus of this episode. During the next two years, the Heimwehr group started making new friends abroad as well, as financial support started flowing in from Italy and Hungary, both of whom wanted a fascistic government installed in order to make Austria bulwark from German expansion southwards. The national co-leader of the Heimwehr at the time, Richard Steidel, resolved to utilize the group's newfound influence and increased resources to force a showdown with the socialists. In October 1928, his forces would march on the city of Weiner Neustadt, an industrial city just 30 miles south of Vienna, which was considered a socialist stronghold. Steidel wanted to break that bastion and demonstrate to both the domestic and foreign audience what his organization could do. His idea was to simply march his fascist columns through town in a show of force. With the city populated by strong supporters of the socialists, the Schutzbund would have no choice but to come out and fight. They couldn't have fascists marching freely through their heartlands, after all. And this march was not kept secret, not at all. The date was publicly marked for October 7th, and for months beforehand, the nation's press conjectured about how the advertised confrontation would go down. The Social Democrats desperately tried to get the government to intervene to ban the march, but Steidel publicly asserted that they would defy any such bans and even force a civil war if they had to. Suffer not a socialist to live and all that. Chancellor Seipel used the tensions to force the socialists to give political concessions in the Austrian parliament, 
while putting off their demands for disarmament laws applying to paramilitary groups. Under pressure from the business class and the press, he did eventually force an arrangement where the Schutzbund and Heimwehr would each march through the city at different times, all under the watchful eye of the police and military. To his credit, Seipel's order did turn the whole thing into a non-event. 19,000 Heimwehr members from around the country entered the city, marched around and departed, while the Schutzbund mustered 14,000 members and 21,000 civilians in a countermarch. The two sides were kept apart by the military at all times, and the socialists themselves kept their discipline. Steidel would declare a victory, but both his patrons and comrades expressed their disappointments in his leadership, as they had hoped for a violent confrontation. Mussolini would actually pull his support for a year, and was only pulled back in after a lot of encouraging from the Hungarians. His disappointment with the non-event was so great. The other Heimwehr co-leader, Walter Frammer, gained more prominence in the group as he was far more the uncompromising type who had wanted to launch a push right there and then. Frommer was much more the Nazi type, being a rabid pan-German who utilized the swastika as the emblem of the troops he controlled. The relationship between the two co-leaders would only be maintained by one Voldemort Pabst, who was, hey, wait a minute, I, I know that guy. Oh god, it's, it's Captain Pabst. This is kind of a blast from the past, which, yeah, I know that that's what this whole show is all about, but long-time listeners may remember old Pabst from way back in episodes 24, 26, and 37 as a prominent leader among the Free Corps in Germany. He was a key leader in taking Berlin from the worker uprisings early in 1919. He ordered the executions of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. He organized a takeover of Latvia by German Free Corps units operating in the Baltics and was one of the top conspirators in the Capuche. I might have mentioned after that last incident he fled Germany for Hungary, but he did not wait around there. He slipped over to Austria in the early 20s and set himself up as the Heimwehr boss of the Tyrol region, so he was effectively playing the paramilitary game since the end of World War I. And just in case you're wondering, no, he doesn't pay for any of this. He'll eventually lose his influence in the far right, but he wound up getting gigs in the arms industry, leaving Germany in the summer of 1944 to work for an arms company in Switzerland. He'd returned to Germany in the 50s and died 89. Just a stupendous lack of consequences for the man. Anyway, despite the setback in October 1928, the Heimwehr were kind of in the ascendancy still. Membership was growing, the socialists were less and less a threat, and politicians still made eyes at them. Chancellor Seipel even toyed with the idea of integrating them into a part of the armed forces proper. The new equilibrium started to unravel, though, when Seipel suddenly resigned in April 1929, following a defeat in his attempts to transfer additional powers to the presidential office. The following coalition government was headed by the new chancellor, Ernst Stierowitz. He initially pledged that the government would work openly with the Heimwehr, but then British financiers came along and dangled a loan out in front of him. They told Stirovitz that he could have the money if he dissolved the nation's private armies. The socialists additionally offered political concessions if he could pull that off too. In addition, the new chancellor evidently took exception to how casual men like Steidel and Fremer were with him personally. While he couldn't summon the power to do away with them, the new chancellor didn't work to secure their support or even their neutrality. This did isolate him, and the chief of police, Schober, and the defense minister, Karl Vargoin, both assured the leaders of the Heimwehr that they were an integral part of Austria's future. And Sturowitz was not. 
Meanwhile, Paps decamped from Innsbruck and set up an office in Vienna, which, given past behavior, was a sure sign that conspiracies were afoot. Sturevitz tried to corral the paramilitaries by banning marches during the summer on the grounds that it was tourist season and those kinds of things kind of, you know, freaked tourists out. The orders were only effective in Vienna. Everywhere else, local authorities turned a blind eye. That or marches were disguised as patriotic celebrations or the Catholic Church declared them to be religious events. Which, yeah, good going again, Catholic Church. By September 1929, Schober was successful in marshalling his conservative friends and his allies in the Heimwehr to topple Streirovitz. Steidel was initially overjoyed that the Heimwehr's patron assumed control of the government, and was sure that they would quickly pass reforms that were being pushed by the right that would empower the president of the country to be able to appoint chancellors and create cabinets instead of the parliament. This would bypass socialist interference, as the presidency always went to a conservative, which was convenient because the socialists in parliament were too large a minority to completely ignore in that branch of government. The Heimwehr specifically wanted to remove the separate status of Vienna and merge it into its surrounding province, diluting the power of the socialists in the capital badly. Schober paid lip service to passing the new legislation, but he gave the fascists cause for alarm when he didn't give any of them a place in his cabinet, citing the global financial crisis that had started in America and was already affecting Austria as a reason he needed to appoint only the best technocrats to keep the ship of state going. He even managed to get Steidel to convince the Italians to send the Austrian government a vital loan in order to maintain normal governance. By the end of the year, though, relations had broken down between the Heimwehr and the new government. Schober introduced the government reform laws in mid-October 1929, but the Heimwehr had already whipped itself into a frenzy at the thought of being ditched by the man they had championed. They took to the streets all over the country in November, and Steidel threatened to replace Schober with Vaguin. However, the Heimwehr were making demands they couldn't back up. For all their strength compared to the government, the leaders of the group were ultimately a cautious lot who saw a lot more to lose than to gain in a push. It didn't help that the conservatives still saw them as protectors of their own interests, pawns to be used, not as players or even, God forbid, kingmakers. They were more to be humored and used, not caved into. On November 18th, Vaugouin confirmed his loyalty to Schober, and the conservatives in Parliament rallied to the Chancellor's side. Some conservative reforms went through, but Vienna kept its separate status, and parliamentary approval was required to confirm government still. The Heimwehr remained threatening, but they slunk off into a period of isolation, as it was demonstrated they didn't dominate the government like they believed they had. As 1930 dawned, it looked as though Schober's position was secure which was good because the Depression would be picking up steam during that time. In the period of 1925 to 1929, the nation's economy had managed to bounce back from the brink, returning to 1913 levels. This was, however, a similar story to Germany's own experience during those years, as the recovery depended on foreign loans. As international creditors became more reticent to lend, there was a resulting drop-off in performance. Austria's economy would slowly decline until its banking sector broke in 1931. As I covered back in episode 124, Austria's weak financial sector had become concentrated in the Credit Anstalt Bank, which was a result of other banks failing and their assets and liabilities being scooped up. Turned out, some of those liabilities included losses much greater than previously advertised, and depositors panicked. A bank run ensued, collapsing Credit Anstalt, the industries that the bank had a stake in, and Austria's financial sector. The unemployment rate went into 
overdrive, reaching 20% by 1931 and peaking at 40% in 1934. Industrial production went down 30% from 1929, exports declined 47%, public salaries, pensions, and benefits were slashed across the board, and those farms that had been carefully built up during the 20s to try and help feed the nation more effectively were ruined by price drops. The government was only kept afloat during these years by a significant loan from the League of Nations in July 1932 that included the caveats that Austria would abandon its efforts at pursuing political or economic unions with Germany. Which, hey, the money was needed, but it angered everyone in the country across the political spectrum, as it was taken as a capitulation to foreign dictates. Which it was. The first period of the Depression found the Heimwehr in the doldrums. The group's failure to muscle its way into a semblance of power in late 1929 had left them adrift, with its leadership going down two different paths. Frimmer started to embrace the Nazis, on the rise over in Germany, and just starting to become a force in Austria, and became a proponent of a union between the two nations. Steidel and his supporters, on the other hand, favored continuing to work through the Austrian establishment and got in touch with ex-Chancellor Ignaz Seipel, who himself was looking to get back into high office, and started discussing with him the possibility of a political collaboration. The internal divisions were only made more complicated by the rise of Prince Starenberg, a noble from Western Austria who had served in the army and even dipped into Germany to fight alongside the Free Corps during their invasion of Bavaria in 1919. He had effectively become a third national leader and alternated between pan-German declarations and advocating a strong, but separate, Austrian state. The presence of three competing leaders was perfect for Chancellor Schober's purposes, and on June 13, 1930, the parliament finally was able to pass legislation to disarm the private armies. The next day, Pabst was arrested and deported back to Germany on numerous charges. He had been conspiring with the police and military against the government, and was even accused of trying to sabotage a foreign loan. This made the fascist infighting worse, as Pabst was seemingly the one guy capable and respected enough to act as a diplomat between the factions. Pabst would re-enter Austria later in the year, but the divisions between the organization's leaders was so far advanced by that point that his talents were no longer sufficient to keep things together. Steidel and Fremmer immediately tore each other, while Starenberg remained off to the side. In fact, the young prince, who was only 31 at the time, the other two leaders being well into middle age, was making a lot of useful friends. The Italians and Hungarians had decided that Schober ruled with enough of an iron hand for their purposes, and both encouraged the prince to take a firmer hand within his own organization for the purposes of working better with Schober. Starenberg's willingness to play ball worked out great for the chancellor, as on September 2, 1930, Starenberg was elected the sole leader of the Heimwehr in an internal election. The rank and file had finally gotten tired of their bickering old guard. But Schober did not have long at all to savor the victory, as on September 25th, the defense minister Vaguan stabbed him in the back and withdrew his party's support from the governing coalition. The occasion was one of Vaguan's people being denied an appointment after losing a corruption trial, something that the defense minister didn't see as a big deal or disqualifying in any way. Baguan quickly formed a new coalition under his own leadership and took the extraordinary step of reserving two cabinet seats for the Heimwehr, with Starenberg becoming Minister of the Interior. This was an incredible turnaround, and Starenberg hustled back from a trip in Hungary to assume his new role. Baguan miscalculated, though, and figured that the actual people of Austria would support his new cabinet, and called elections in November to get a big fat stamp of approval. 
he lost that election, and the key to making another coalition government rested in the hands, once again, of Schober and his supporters. Moreover, the Heimwehr were dealt a public blow, as it turned out that their presence in Vaguan's brief government failed to drive turnout. The group would have lost out on a great deal of support going into 1931, but was ironically rescued by the rise of the Nazis. The rise of that party in Germany was bad enough, but the success of Adolf Hitler and his followers echoed in Austria as well. There had always been a branch of the Nazis in Austria. Sometimes they even overlapped with the Heimwehr. But it was always a fringe party, weaker than even its parent group during the 20s. In the 1930 election, they actually had a showing, though not enough to get representation. The fear became that if Hitler gained power in Germany, then the Austrian Nazis would act as a fifth column to unify the two states. This led conservatives in favor of an independent Austria into going back to the Heimwehr, as well as Mussolini, who had steadily lost interest in the group. In the meantime, bigger events were unfolding. In May 1931, the Credit Anstalt Bank collapsed, which, as I covered a moment ago, was effectively a bomb to the whole system. The fragile government that had just coalesced under Chancellor Otto Ender evaporated into the ether entirely. It was a ripe environment for extremist organizations, but the Heimwehr, for their part, were far from ripe themselves. Nobody told Fremer that, and he resolved to take the wing of the Heimwehr that he still controlled and lead a push on the government. Starenberg's disastrous participation in government politics had discredited him for a time, and Fremer resolved to go through with what he had been wanting to do since 1928. On the late evening of September 12th, he launched an uprising in his home province of Styria in Austria's southeast. The idea was to emulate the march on Rome. They'd secure Styria, then march north and link up with Heimwehr units on the way to Vienna. It turned out to be a lot more like the beer hall push, though. Germans always seemed to miss the preceding two years of coercing power that the Italian fascists took before actually marching on Rome. By the morning of the 13th, it was obvious the whole thing was a bust. Authorities didn't go over to Fremer, the rest of the Heimwehr stood back and did nothing, and Fremer quickly gave up on the push and fled to Yugoslavia. He would come back to Austria to face trial, only to be acquitted, of course, but his time at the forefront was over. He would keep some followers, but would defect over the Nazis in less than a year and a half. He'd spend the rest of his career serving as an unremarkable Nazi backbencher. The socialists, too, were oddly discredited by the incident. Part of why it fell apart so quickly was because everybody saw it coming, and the Schutzbund was mobilized to combat their traditional foe. Thing was, the social democratic leadership didn't actually want to send in their own paramilitaries to fight. This made them look incredibly weak, as it was apparent that if there ever was a confrontation between the two groups, that the socialists would back down for fear of provoking the authorities. I dearly wish I could give you more of a story that includes the left actually, you know, fighting back, but the memory of July 1927 broke them so badly that they simply didn't have any fight in them. Finally, the incident enhanced the position of the Nazis in Austria. The Heimwehr were made to look like fools yet again, and the Nazis could smugly point out that the group simply didn't have a strong enough ideology to rally behind. This realignment in the far right would push Starenberg to become far more an Austrian nationalist, as he came to realize that the prospect of a German-Austrian union was becoming more real by the day. Concluding that he'd have more influence in an independent Austria rather than as a foot soldier for Hitler, the prince threw his support against the pan-Germans. Everyone would get a shock, though, in the April 1932 local elections, 
where the Austrian Nazis vastly increased their support across the board. In almost every provincial government, the establishment parties lost their majorities due to an increased Nazi share and were forced to start working with the Social Democrats just to keep the day-to-day business moving. The causes of this turn were simple. The people of Austria were suffering, their leaders were ineffectual, and even their own homegrown extremists were ineffectual. They turned to some outside guys that seemed to be going places. Because while by that time Hitler was still about a little over half a year outside of power, he was the main guy people were talking about in German politics. He promised he'd fix Germany and that he wanted to take Austria along for the ride. So many an Austrian figured, hey, it was worth a shot. Now, this really screwed things up for everybody. The Nazis weren't beholden to anyone established in Austria. Their agenda was to unify with Germany and throw themselves at the feet of their Fuhrer. Basically, the Austrian Nazis had a lot of guys who couldn't get into positions of influence through the normal establishment, and Hitler represented an alternative pathway. And to the established that they hoped to bypass, they had to be stopped. Not because of democracy, but because there were interests to be served. Still, the local elections were undeniable and signaled that the mood of the people had shifted. Demands were made to call national elections to further confirm that. Enter Engelbert Dolphus and he's worth partially remembering. He was a devout Catholic who lived an austere lifestyle of self-denial. He came from the Christian Social Party and had taken over that group's leadership after Ignaz Seipel had passed away in August 1932. He was picked out by the Austrian president to form a government and somehow stop the Nazis. The most important thing to start off with was to delay the national elections in order to prepare for the battles to come. Part of that preparation was, once again, to bring the Heimwehr into the fold. Starenberg, desperate to get up off the sidelines he had been on for the past year, readily agreed to an alliance. Although he was personally unsure about Dolphus, him being previously only the agriculture and forestry minister, which wasn't exactly a position that made one qualified to fight for control of the nation. Regardless, Dolphus himself came to regret bringing the Heimwehr back in, as they quickly started using their cabinet powers to assail the Social Democrats, who turned their backs on Dolphus immediately. Wishing to isolate the Nazis, Dolphus was left only with the Conservatives and the Heimwehr. Abroad, too, he was increasingly isolated. The Western powers were uninterested in aiding his ruined country, and by the start of 1933, Hitler was in charge and, well, he kind of wanted to run Austria, too. Dolphus was left to rely on Mussolini for support. This did not bode well for Austria's political system, as Dolphus came to the conclusion that governing through a coalition wasn't going to work, and a specific type of Austro-fascism was needed. On March 4, 1933, an unfortunate slip in procedure opened the door to dictatorship. A special session of parliament resulted in a deadlocked vote. The officers overseeing the session resigned, and everybody went home without the session having been properly adjourned. The chancellor said that the parliament was in a kind of limbo that the constitution did not cover, and that the body had voluntarily eliminated itself. Dolphus took up enabling act powers that were enacted in the midst of World War I as a pretext to rule by decree. He was effectively seizing power. On March 7th, it was announced that the cabinet would function without the parliament. Unauthorized public meetings or marches were banned on the spot. On March 15th, one of the officers from the special session from 11 days previous tried to reopen Parliament. The cabinet responded by letting everyone know they'd suppress a meeting by force. Naturally, the Social Democrats opted to 
not take to the streets in resistance. There was a small gathering of delegates, but the cops showed up immediately to break them up. The Heimwehr sprung into action in the provinces, renewing attacks on the socialists left and right. On March 31st, Dolphus ordered the dissolution of the Schutzbund. Socialists across the country were arrested and disarmed. The much larger threat to the government by that point were the Nazis, as they were engaged in street violence across the country to protest their being shut out of politics. While the authorities worked to contain them, they were not persecuted to the same extent as the socialists, not by a long shot. In fact, their popularity only grew in the days to come, disheartening the nationalist far-right in Austria. And by that time, Hitler was firmly in power in Germany and casting his gaze back to his homeland. By May 27th, virtually all economic ties between Austria and Germany were severed as Hitler sought revenge for his sub-party being persecuted. This served to drive Austria even further towards Mussolini. In June 1933, the Nazi party was banned in Austria and its members driven underground. That being said, they were very much still there, so that would be an issue in the future. In September 1933, Dolphus formed the Fatherland Front, a conglomeration of conservative and nationalist groups, including an enthusiastic Heimwehr, in order to build an overtly fascist government modeled on Italy. The hope was to form a fascist bloc with Italy and Hungary to counter the Germans. By the end of 1933, Austria had well and truly fallen to fascism. Not that there had been a huge amount of resistance to it, and it had been a long-term project of the nation's conservatives anyway. The Depression had inadvertently sped the process along by driving people to the Nazi party, which provided the final impulse to take the plunge and end democracy. It would not reappear again until years after World War II. The fault, ultimately, was with the conservatives. Their single-minded wish to break apart the socialists allowed for the fascist groups to fester and rejuvenate, even when they should have been dissolved multiple times. Which was by design. Those groups were always supposed to be a tool for them to use against the socialists. Rule of law, or even scruples in general, be damned. Which, hey, is kind of what the German conservatives were going for, too, with the Nazis, just that nobody could really control that particular group. But the suppression of the socialists, the ineffectualness of the establishment, and the normalization of the Heimwehr meant that Austrians were left with few choices other than authoritarianism. And since much of the nation had already bought into the pan-German idea anyway, it was not a big leap for the populace to prefer hitching their fortunes to a bigger and seemingly more successful dictator. But that's all for the future, and Hitler and the Nazis certainly weren't done playing games with Dolphus and the Austrians just yet. I'll return to Austria later this season, as Dolphus would eventually come into the crosshairs of the Nazis. But for next week, I'll be moving on to Austria's old imperial partner, Hungary, and their response to the Great Depression. Spoiler, like Austria, it's going to get a lot more fascist. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.